Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking to Tom Scott Phillips about Speaking Our Minds, in which he sets out a view of the emergence of language where pragmatics, and specifically inferential communication, plays a vital role. We discuss some of the implications of his ideas for the development of evolutionary linguistics in particular, and for the shape of linguistics in general. I'm delighted to welcome Tom Scott Phillips to talk about his new book, Speaking Our Minds, in which he sets out a persuasive and integrative account of how language evolved. Tom, what inspired you to write this book? So I guess there are two reasons, one personal and one uh, more scholarly. So the personal reason is um, I I spent six years between my undergrad and my postgrad education, and um, my undergrad was actually in mathematics, and so it was quite a change of fields when I started studying the evolution of language um, as a MSc student. And during that time, I read a lot of books by the likes of Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and Stephen Pinker and Matt Ridley and others. Um, and I love those books. Uh, and in um, many respects, they changed my life because they encouraged me to um, pursue those sorts of topics. And uh, although this book is not meant uh, entirely to be in the same vein as those sorts of books, um, I nevertheless wanted to write something that um, was accessible and broad and maybe uh, sets uh, gives me the experience to write something more of that ilk um, later on in my career. So that's the personal reason. The more scholarly reason is that um, well, I guess I felt I had something to say. As you know, uh, central to the book is uh, the distinction between uh, two different ways of thinking about communication. So, so the intuitive code model approach and then um, the more pragmatically focused ostensive inferential model. So a lot of people in language evolution and indeed in linguistics more generally approach their work from a code model perspective, not because they're naive to the realities of pragmatics, but for, for basically methodological reasons. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good idealization for many purposes. But I think when we do that, so sometimes, uh, sometimes that fact uh, is, is then, the fact that it's an idealization is then forgotten in later on in the conclusions. And I think if you take pragmatics seriously, when you think about language evolution, a lot of the debates in the field actually um, start to look a lot clearer. Um, once you add pragmatics into the mix. And uh, I guess that's what I wanted to say um, and to, to, to sort of say what uh, the evolutionary history of language and what the evolution of language is looks like when you uh, take a pragmatic perspective. Yeah, I'm just um, placing this in a broader context. As you mentioned in the book, that this question of language evolution has attracted the interest maybe in a rather peripheral way of some great thinkers past and present um, do you feel now is the time when, when real progress can be made towards settling the matter? Well, I don't, I don't know about settling the matter finally. I don't think that will ever happen because a lot of what we're, well, at least when it comes to historical questions, a lot of what we're arguing over, we don't have um, the direct data. So um, we, we, I don't think we'll ever reach a stage when everybody's in complete agreement. But I guess I do think um, that, we have we're, we're in a better position now than we have ever been before to to say things that are coherent and grounded in um, good insight and data from diverse range of fields. And I think the reason we're there is maybe not so much actually new data itself, 
but more uh, the increasing uh, not only acceptance but encouragement that, that, that we as academics experience to pursue multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary work. And, you know, there are generation, I mean, certainly I feel a lot of people in my generation of researchers are quite comfortable in that multidisciplinary environment. And uh, so, so we're quite happy integrating insights from linguistics and uh, cognitive anthropology and evolutionary biology, primatology and so on. Sure. As you mentioned, it has been a very interdisciplinary enterprise, and it's a little surprising to realise that linguistic pragmatics hasn't been <laughs> particularly central to that. Um, why, why do you feel that is? Why do you think it's been overlooked thus far? I think uh, I, I don't think it's because language evolution researchers are naive. Uh, I think I mean, every time I talk to, to anybody, they say, yes, of course, this is important, and uh, and, and they acknowledge the reality of, of pragmatics in everyday linguistic uh, communication. I think it's more comes back to that point I made a few minutes ago about sort of simplifying assumptions that we that we make to sort of get on with our work. So just a couple of examples. So one would be, you know, a, a lot of the field of language evolution um, in its current form stems from work in the 90s uh, done with computational models of various sorts. Uh, and those models uh, conceive of communication and indeed of languages as, as sets of mappings. So you have a mapping, say, from a state of the world to some signal, some linguistic signal, and then a, another mapping um, from the signal to, to to a response. And you can label um, you, you can label the respective parts of that meaning if you so wish. Of course, that's a code model of how language works, and everybody will say, yes, we know that pragmatics is important, but uh, in terms of just getting a start on that, start on this problem, how are we going to even start thinking about it, we're going to make this simplifying assumption. And that's all well and good. But then when you draw your conclusions out of that, uh, you, you've got to bring the pragmatics back in. Uh, and I think sometimes uh, people have neglected to do that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that, that, that's one part of the problem. And I guess another dimension to that is people often assume that, that, that even if they acknowledge the, the importance of pragmatics for linguistic communication, they still see it as kind of a bonus extra to the linguistic code. So the code is the thing that we really want to explain and understand. And then we've, there's this extra bonus feature, which is fantastic and makes linguistic communication even more expressive. Um, and I, I, one of the central points I point out at the very beginning of, of the book is that actually that, that view of language, which I think is quite intuitive to a lot of people and indeed to a lot of professional linguists, is actually upside down. So what makes linguistic or, or communication possible in the first place is pragmatics and more precisely capacities for ostension and for inference. And then the code is actually the bonus that goes on top of that. Um, so, so the code being the sets of conventions that we share as a community, be they semantic, syntactic, phonological and so on and so forth. Um, you, you place the notion of ostensive inferential communication very much at the, at the heart of the enterprise, as you say. Could you say a few words about the, the essence of what that entails? Sure. So, I mean, the, the key insights go back to, to Grice and other natural language philosophers of, of the middle of the 20th century who pointed out that um, the code model is, is uh, unable to account for many instances of ordinary linguistic communication. So, and then Grice developed uh, his, you know, in his work in, in several important uh, papers, uh, a different way of thinking about how linguistic communication can be made possible in the first place. And that's been, um, you know, pragmatics has moved on since then. And I take Sperber and Wilson's relevance theory to be uh, a, a very key text 
So, and, and they're the ones that coined the, the, the phrase ostensive inferential communication. And what they're pointing to, um, and as I say, it goes back to Grice, is the fact that what makes communication possible in the first place is the ability to express and recognize intentions. And obviously, they talk in a lot more detail ex exactly what those intentions are. Um, and I guess we'll talk about that shortly. But at bottom, um, what, what's making communication possible is these uh, meta-psychological abilities, abilities to think about others' minds. And that's in contrast to, to the code model of communication, where what, what is making things possible in the first place is mechanisms of association. And of course, organisms all over the natural world communicate in various ways, and the vast majority, and perhaps all of them, um, are made possible by mechanisms of association of various sorts. Uh, what's interesting about human communication is that it, it seems it's, a, it's different in kind because what makes it possible in the first place is uh, these mechanisms of meta-psychology and then the mechanisms of association are what actually make it more expressively powerful. That's the set of codes, conventional codes that I talked about a moment ago. Yeah, um, and of course a lot of linguistics uh, as it's practiced has tended to be about the conventions. Yes. Do you feel that in, in some sense the discipline is incorrectly or maybe suboptimally focused, given the, the view that you expound on uh, how language works? That's a big question. Uh, I think several times in the book I, I, I looked at other disciplines for analogies, and I'm going to do, do it here. If we look at biology, um, Darwin's theory of natural selection provides the paradigm for the discipline of biology. It's, it's the basic framework into which all biology can um from, from which you can look look at all aspects of biology there's a famous quote nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution having said that that does not mean that all biologists are evolutionary biologists nor does it mean they all should be so you know your typical cell biologist who's trying to understand the detailed workings of the cell doesn't need to uh understand the details of darwinian evolution and uh, and i i don't want to say that that that's that that's a mistake there's no it may not be directly relevant at a certain you know given the details of the particular thing you're studying to have a detailed knowledge of the of, of how the how the paradigm that frames the discipline uh works and it may well be the same in linguistics so i think if we're going to have a general paradigm for linguistics i think at bottom it you know it, it's it's going to be pragmatic but nevertheless that does not mean that all work in linguistics should be um, pragmatic, uh, pragmatically focused or, or, or based upon pragmatics. It depends on exactly the nature of the thing you're trying to study in any particular case. Sure, yeah. Um, it does, I mean, we would take the view that this, this kind of outlook suggests that pragmatics might be able to inform us about certain other aspects of language that, in a way that isn't completely obvious. I think that's true. And... Uh, I mean, I, I certainly do think it's true that um, pragmatics is neglected not only in language evolution, but in linguistic, linguistics more generally. Um, I don't have anything right now um, particularly in-depth or incisive to say about what pragmatics has to say about, you know, debates in syntax or sociolinguistics or phonetics or, or whatever it might be. But frequently when I see talks from those disciplines, I do, you know, part of me thinks, well, Things look different if you're uh, if you take the um, the realities of how people are using these conventions in everyday communication, and those questions don't seem to be asked um, uh, as much as I think would be sensible. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I'm, I'm um, guessing you might you, you you're inclined to agree with me on those sorts of points, Chris. Well, I think I am. Yes, I mean, I my 
my view is that what you're what you're proposing is possibly quite radical in terms of what it suggests about well, for instance, how how complex syntax comes about. Mm. Um, I mean, in, in chapter two, you discuss this the, the, this point that human language is highly combinatorial and animal communication systems hardly have that property at all, yes. which of course is a is a key locus for positing a difference between, a categorical difference between human and animal communication, if you like, the, the root of yeah. um, a UG-type argument. And there are various possible explanations for that that you discuss, but you're, uh, you favour an analysis that appeals to this, fundamentally to this ostensive nature of human communication, is that right? That's right, yeah. So it's certainly the case that we see um, very little evidence of properly combinatorial communication out there in the natural world. So that kind of invites um, a conclusion that uh, the capacity for combining things together in this way is is perhaps something that is a key uh, difference between humans and other species. Uh, and I've been quite sceptical. I, I express a lot of scepticism about that argument in the book because, well, for there's a couple of reasons. So one is that I don't see any reason why sticking two things together should be cognitively demanding. It doesn't seem a priori you know, to, to be the case that we should expect that to be beyond the ken of other species. And uh, thinking about those points a few years ago, I ended up collaborating with some um, microbiologists because um, I was talking to them about the communication of um, bacteria. Uh, and they suggested that something of basic forms of combinatoriality exist in bacterial systems. So we ended up collaborating and we did indeed find basic forms of combinatoriality in these bacterial systems. Uh, which look very similar to the basic forms of combinatoriality that you see in some non-human primates and maybe in a couple of other places. And if you see it in bacteria, that kind of undermines the argument that the difference here is some sort of cognitive one to do with the ability to combine things together. So that that, that is reason one why I've been sceptical. That's really where the important differences lie. The other is uh, when you think about how um, communication systems evolve through natural selection, how code model communication systems evolve through natural selection. Uh, when you think seriously about that, then you, you, you start to appreciate that combinatorial systems should be rare just because uh, there's a lot of dependent, interdependency between signals and responses in, that, in the, the dynamics of that evolution. The details of that argument are a little bit technical to go into just verbally right now, but um, I've published a model on that and, uh, and I expand on it a bit in the book. So there's two reasons why I'm quite sceptical that the difference lies in, in just the ability to combine things together in the first place. And what I say instead is once you've got extension and inference, then all those all those dynamical barriers towards creating combinatorial systems vanish because with extension and inference, we can it essentially opens the floodgates. So we can take two existing signals and combine them together. And our, our intended audience may never have heard that combination before, but they can understand what we mean. Um, and the reason they can do that is the capacities for, for inference. And the reason we can put them together in the first place is our capacities for extension. And indeed, we can actually do that with things. We can create new signals at will. We can, we can invent new words. We can make new vocalizations, which we've never used before. And often, if we do it in the right way, these things are entirely successful. So the interdependence of signals and responses uh, is something we can, uh, is not a problem for, for at least for humans because our capacities for extension and inference allow us to create things at will and indeed, and then as receivers to infer the intended meaning that the speaker was trying to communicate. You don't discuss uh, the emergence of, of complex syntax in a sort of human natural language 
time setting um, in the book, mm. but I guess it's something you've thought about in, in terms of how we get from these these kinds of basic combinatorial operations to that kind of complex syntax. Do you feel that that's a that's a difficult gap to bridge, or do you feel that, for example, developments in syntactic theory in recent years have maybe made that narrower and more plausible? So, yeah. So I don't. Uh, I guess the closest I come in the book to commenting on how you go from simple, simply sticking things together to, to the far more complex um, structures that we see in natural languages is is actually in chapter five where I talk about um, the cultural evolution of languages. And uh, what I'm pointing out there is that natural languages seem to be um, attractive in a dynamical system sense, by which I mean that as as languages pass between individuals and, and we use them in interaction and communication, they change in various ways and then they change towards forms that better fit the design of the human mind, um, the goals and the dispositions of humans and indeed to to each other. So one part of language changes that um, affects the utility of other parts of languages. Um, and people studying the cultural evolution of languages have started to make some progress in in tracking the, this process of cultural attraction, uh, the cultural evolution of languages. But so far, they're really at a quite a basic stage. There are, there are studies on the emergence of basic forms of systematicity or compositionality, depending on what label you want to use. But, um, maybe uh, there's a little bit of insight into how duality of pattern, patterning might have emerged. Yeah, um, and, and these kind of very foundational basic properties. Nobody's really taken the next step yet to go to ask, well, well, what are the next steps once you've got that to, to go to the more to, to the far more complex structures we see in languages? Thinking about it just now, I, I guess the, the closest. So, so Ray Jackendoff has has um, uh, in his Foundations of Language book and in a, in a paper in Tick some years ago, he sort of sketched how you might go from very, very simple uh, structures to far more complex structures. And that paper and the, the, those insights have generated some discussion, but nobody's really taken those insights, um, sort of picked those insights up and run with them and developed uh, the models and the experiments and so on, which will allow us to either verify or, or disconfirm um, his hypotheses. Uh, and so I, I guess that's a that's an area that's, that I, I fully expect actually will be quite an active area of research for language evolution in the coming 10 to 20 years. Yes, makes sense. I mean, it's certainly been my impression that from a generative perspective, what's being talked about in terms of language evolution is somewhat uh, somewhat vague, or at least fairly minimal. And mm. from a language evolutionary perspective, what's being talked about in traditional generative linguistics is uh, very precise and seems to rely on very large and improbable leaps taking place. Do, do you feel that the two kinds of account are ultimately reconcilable by some means? When you say... Uh Generative? Do you mean? Do you specifically mean a commitment to certain theoretical perspectives on on syntax, or do you, do you just mean the description of, of of structure, complex structure in natural languages? Well, I don't want to be too too um, specific about that. I mean, just the the way in which the way in which, uh, if you like, complex syntax is treated by linguists who aren't interested or not into evolutionary approaches. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, I guess. One side is looking at, at, at complexity and the richness of, of natural languages, and the other side of this this conversation is actually trying to look at sort of fundamental building blocks. Blocks, and I try to establish what are the really basic things that um, you can start with, and from then start to build up 
to the more uh, to the more complex structures, which have, I guess, been the more traditional domain of, of linguistics as a discipline. There's a, there is you're you're right to point to the the fact there's a gap between those sorts of research enterprises at the moment, and that's a gap that needs needs to be filled in in the coming years. I think the approach of trying to address this from a pragmatic perspective, even though it's a very attractive one to me at least, um, my own kind of definition of, of pragmatics, or for that matter semantics, would be would be very broad to the extent that it goes way outside what's termed linguistics, particularly on a kind of Chomskyan definition, yeah. and goes into communication systems that aren't that don't have the properties of mm-hmm. that are characteristic of human language. Um, I mean, my impression is that an evolutionary account sort of naturally gravitates towards that kind of continuity but you don't necessarily make that quite that commitment i was about to agree with you so maybe i've lost the track of your question <laughs> that's okay feel free to agree um <laughs> well i was going to agree but then you suggested that i was going to disagree so i, m- I may have misunderstood <laughs> but you make the you do make the point that, that you don't necessarily assume that there is a there is a continuity in a, in a very obvious sense between uh human language and its apparent precursors or analogues in non-human species. Oh, I see. Yeah, well, so certainly between between humans and non-humans, I don't, the, the, there's not a reason to, to assume continuity. So my reasons for, for making that argument are the ones I sketched um, a few minutes ago to do with the fact... My, my reasons are that, that most animal communication systems seem to be uh, instances of the code model, so that they are made possible by these mechanisms of association. Certainly that's true of some animal communication systems, the bacteria being kind of an extreme point, but but many others too. And so and so it becomes an empirical question. Which, if any other species, communicate with ostension and inference? Um and then if they do, do they actually build conventions onto the back of that? Uh and so uh, um chap part of the book, chapter four, is dedicated to the question of looking at great ape communication and asking whether that's ostent- ostensive and inferential. Um, and I conclude in the negative. And so given that, I'm, uh, that, that leaves me saying, well, only humans are the only species that communicate with, uh, with, with ostension and inference. Uh, and hence, there, there is this, this deep con- discontinuity between, between our communication and the communication uh, of other species. Which I guess is not necessarily a, um, a common ground between you and people actively working in evolutionary anthropology who might be more drawn towards continuity type explanations or, or is that an erroneous generalization? I think, I think in general people working in evolutionary approaches to humans and human behavior are often looking um, well I mean they're obviously they're looking for similarities and differences because both are interested and can in, interesting and can enlighten us about what it means to be human in the first place but certainly yeah it's a common argument or, or assumption depending on what on, on the individuals that, that there is going to be continuity and um, but but that's not a universal view. So if you look in language evolution, for instance, there are there are certainly people coming from quite different perspectives from mine, both methodologically and um, theoretically, who would all, who would also argue for discontinuity, pointing out that whilst you do see some perhaps some sort of very um, distant similarities um, between human communication and some of other species, there are there are also big big differences. So, um, you know, the, the capacity to, to express basically any concept we wish to, it's just something you don't see in any other species. It, the, the, the infinite range of language is just not, not there. So, I mean, B- Derek Bickerton has made the point that that, in a way, logically, there must be a discontinuity because you can't just add 
to something simple many, many times and get, get an infinite range of expression. The ability to express things infinitely is not something you get through through that sort of gradual approach. Now that's I don't know if I want to buy that argument 100 percent, but he's pointing to the same, you know, he's pointing to the same conclusion that I am, that there, there may well be a deep discontinuity between the communication of, of humans and, and other species. But your view contrasts with the sort of traditional linguistic perspective on this in that you uh, would locate that discontinuity at this level of, of uh, ostensive inferential communication rather than as some kind of, for example, syntactic operation. Yeah, that's where I would differ with Bickerton and and indeed plenty of other people. For me, the locus of difference lies in, yeah, pragmatics and in particular the capacity for for ostensive inferential communication in the first place. An interesting point that you make is that the the kinds of comparison that we might need to do might not be the obvious ones in that in that sense yeah. that on the one hand we, we can be interested in the, the comparative study of, of humans and human infants versus great apes but also we might be interested in the comparative study of humans and domesticated animals such as dogs which are presumed to outperform great apes in certain kindred uh, abilities yeah so there's certainly a whole healthy um literature uh, comparing humans, particularly human children and great apes on all sorts of aspects of cognition and communication being one of those. Uh, what's interesting about that literature, certainly um, that literature has been driven by a recognition that intentions of some sort are important to human communication. So that literature has developed this construct called intentional communication, um, which is what they, you know, you can look for uh, in, in, well, chimpanzees and bonobos but other species too, also other species too uh, and, and the criteria typically used to do that are things like um, alternating eye gaze uh, persistence when when your signal fails do you persist do you elaborate on it uh, attention getters uh, so, so behavior that gets the attention of your inter- of your audience before you actually deliver the signal itself uh, and other such things and all these things point to um how the signals are used. So, so they're looking at goal directedness. Is the signal being used intentionally or uh, synonyms of that um, would be deliberately or um, in a goal directed manner? But what, one thing I point out is that that isn't exactly the same thing as what pragmatists mean when they talk about ostensive inferential communication. So Grice's insight was not that humans use language in, in this deliberate and goal directed way. His insight was that what we express when we do communicate are our intentions. Intentions are the thing that we express. They're what we, they're what is communicated. Whereas what the primate literature seems to be looking at with regard to intentions is how the signals are used. So, so I certainly think that the, the primate literature is informative about many things, and in particular about the social cognition of, of non-human primates. But I don't think it's actually comparing like with like when it uh, when it looks at intentional communication and and draws an analogy with with human pragmatics. So a couple of sections of the book are given over to saying, well, what compar- well, what exactly are the comparisons that we should be doing when it comes to, to looking at non-human primates, uh, look, looking for ostension and inference uh, in non-human primates? And presumably it's a very subtle matter because, uh, of course, we can't get self-report about intentions, and these are these internal states that aren't necessarily identifiable if we don't think that absolutely yeah Yeah. it's uh obviously you can't do self-report but in a way you know i mean (laughs) that makes your life harder but it also forces you as a scientist to be um rigorous because you 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 end up 
having to devise uh, experimental paradigms that that are are rigorous with respect to uh, the fact that you need that, that you need to be comparing like if you're going to be comparing children with chimpanzees you want to be comparing like with like so rather than just asking the children you can't do that because you can't ask the chimpanzees so you end up having to construct various scenarios um, putting the children and the chimpanzees in various scenarios and seeing how they behave so it forces you to actually look at the matter in a to to create experimental setups which put the participants, be they children or chimpanzees, in more naturalistic settings. So in a way, you know, it forces you into into more, um, I don't know if rigour is the word I want. I guess I, I guess I find that more satisfying than, than simply asking the, the participants, be they children, adults or whatever. Um, it, it, it seems to be um, more robust, robust would be a better word, more robust to, to see how they actually behave in naturalistic settings. So let me flesh all this out with an example. So if you... A nice little study from some years ago from Mike Tomasello's lab showed that so if a child makes a request of an adult, um, say for a ball that's, that's behind the adult, and then the child gets the ball, but the adult didn't understand that the child wanted the ball. So the adult says, oh, you wanted the toy horse and goes to get the toy horse. And the child inadvertently gets the ball, perhaps because it was not, you know, it, it was knocked down or for whatever reason. The child's material goal is satisfied but their um, their communicative goal was not, and the children complain. So, uh, when what that tells you is that that they they're using communication not simply to achieve material ends, but they actually understand that communication is there to affect mental states. Um, so, in the terms of ostensive inferential communication, they they are expressing proper informative intentions. Informative intentions being an intention to affect a mental state. And so that's that's a situation where you, you know you, you're not asking the child, are you trying to affect the adult's mind or anything? You just put them in a situation uh, uh, and you um, create the appropriate control, experimental controls, and you observe what they do. What's interesting is nobody's done the the, the comparison experiment with chimpanzees. Um, when I've spoken to people who do comparative work about the possibility of doing that, the consensus seems to be it might that that particular experiment might be possible, but nobody thinks chimpanzees are going to pass it. So we don't actually have the data, although there does seem to be a general scepticism among experts in the area that chimpanzees would pass it. And if so, that would be um, that's part of the argument I make uh, in in the book that uh, probably chimpanzees don't communicate here with ostension and inference as humans do. It seems an interesting one because it, this feels like an area in which we very readily anthropomorphize and assume that behaviours are intentional, whereas in fact there may not be very compelling evidence that they are. Yes. Uh, you know, humans, humans ascribe intentions all over the place. We're, we're hypersensitive to it. So and we ascribe intentions to non-material things all the time, to shapes moving around on the screen. We ascribe intentions to, to our cupboards. And, and there are actually good you know, evolutionary reasons why humans should do that, uh, why it's adaptive for us to do that. The flip side, you know, the consequence of that, of course, is that when we look at animals, we ascribe intentions to them. We ascribe intentions to all sorts of creatures, not just socially intelligent ones like chimpanzees, but species that don't have forms of higher cognition like bacteria. Um, so we ascribe intentions all over the place. So, so I think we have to be very wary of, you know, we look at chimpanzees who are clearly intelligent in all sorts of ways. Um, and I actually do think, you know, they're, they're, they have intentions in many of the respects we um, we're interested in, 
But we don't want to um, prejudge the matter. And certainly when it comes to communication, when it's not, as I was pointing out a few minutes ago, it's not just a matter of whether they use the signals intentionally, but about whether what they are actually expressing are intentions. I mean, it's very easy to sort of see their communication and think it's very similar to our to our laughing and pointing and other forms of non-linguistic ostensive communication. But possibly it isn't. And we need to we need to get the data and, and find out. I want to come back briefly, if I may, to that point about it being adaptive to ascribe intention. Sure. Because I, I mean, I think that's a that's a very um, a very good point, a very significant point. I want to. I mean, other other instances of when it would be adaptive to ascribe intention to agents which might not be uh, intentional agents, or which might at least not be communicating intentionally. I mean, the, the argument for ascribing it to uh, other humans seems compelling, but. Well, if something moves suddenly, you know, if you're if you're in a dense environment and some environment and something that there's suddenly a sudden change in that environment, you're much more you're much better off assuming that that's uh, goal directed behavior from some sort of animal um, than you are uh, ascribing it to to, to to chance. The reason being it might be a leopard that's after you. Um, so it, it's kind of the. The, con- the, the, the consequences of the false positive and the false negative are quite different uh, you know, uh, uh, f- from a you know, biological point of view. Uh, one of them is going to might well get you killed and the other one just means you, 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 know, you, you thought it was an animal and it wasn't. So what? Nobody cares. And that, that's why I think it, you know, it's quite natural. To, we, should, we should expect humans to, be, uh, to, to, to ascribe intentions uh, you know, enthusiastically to all sorts of things. Um, because you know the consequences of getting that wrong are not so uh, of getting that wrong are not so serious, but the consequences of not ascribing intentions and getting that wrong are potentially very serious indeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, one idea that you challenge about the about this kind of metacognition mm. is the idea that it's costly yeah. to do, whereas in fact you argue that this is something that even when it seems very abstruse and complicated on paper, we're actually very good at as a species and it looks as though we do it very readily and very efficiently maybe yeah so when we flesh out what's going on in ostensive communication we end up layering on um several different several intentions on top of one another so speakers have an intention that audiences understand that the speakers have an intention to, to inform the audience and Many people have said, well, this, you know, have, have acknowledged the theoretical cogency of this. So when you start dealing with the serious philosophical questions that Grice raised and that Sperber and Wilson addressed and, and many others have addressed since, people say, well, OK, I see the theoretical cogency of this, this account that deals with those problems. But it seems to it seems to posit all these uh, complex or all these intentions which look very complex and surely aren't the sort of thing that we're using in everyday uh, communication. Um, you know, it's it. it when we when we communicate with each other, it, it's it's straightforward. It's not demanding cognitively. Uh, it's automatic, and that seems to go against these descriptions, which, uh, which are heavily embedded with uh, recursive mental states. Um, and so, at this point in the conversation, you've got two directions you can go. So either you can say, "Okay, we'll accept that these the recursively embedded mental states are complex, and therefore." Uh, they're cognitively demanding, and therefore we have to look for sim- more simple theoretical explanations of what's going on in, in human communication that still address the philosophical issues. Or, or you can say, actually, the, the, the cognition involved is not so demanding what, uh, after all. So it might look complicated on paper, 
to describe uh, human communication in terms of recursively embedded mental states, but maybe that's not so demanding. So these are the two options available to you. And to date, most people have been much keener on the former um, uh, argument than the latter. So they've been much keener to say, these things are cognitively demanding. We need to find simpler ways of describing what's going on in, communi in human communication. And indeed, that links in quite naturally to the, to, to the idea of, of finding continuity in non-human primate species. What I do in the book is actually take the opposite tact and say the accounts of human communication that um, invoke these recursively uh, embedded mental states are cogent and they make sense. And what we need to reject is the, is the, is the assumption that uh, recursively, embedded, recursively embedded mental states are cognitively demanding. So, uh, and I guess I've got reasons, partly uh, kind of theoretical reasons based on everyday observation, and I've got some empirical reasons from data um, that I and some students of mine collected uh, in the last year or two. So the everyday observation is actually that we, if you, if you start to describe what's going on in all sorts of everyday interactions, you start to see recursively embedded mental states all over the place. I mean, if you watch any soap opera and there are intentions being ascribed left, right and centre, often embedded inside each other. You can look at Shakespearean plays. Uh, I know uh, somebody, well, a, a researcher in the Netherlands has done some work showing that there are many embedded mental states in many of Shakespeare's plays. And they've been understood by, you know, literally millions of people for hundreds of years, those plays. Uh, and then the data is uh, comes from an experiment I did with some students of mine where we we recorded some videos with sort of soap opera scenarios where people are expressing various different levels of um, of recursively embedded mental state. Uh, and then the participants have to sort of say which of two outcomes is more likely. And even when the number of embedded mental states required to answer those questions gets very high to six or seven levels, actually, people are still still perform very highly indeed. So. Uh, it looks complicated on paper when you start writing down, Tom thinks that Chris wants that somebody else, you know, thinks whatever. But we actually entertain those sorts of thoughts automatically without thinking about them in an entirely subconscious way all the time. So when it comes to that dilemma I referred to a couple of minutes ago, what we need to reject is not the, not, not the theory, but actually the assumption that these things are cognitively demanding in the first place. I was going to bring up the example you allude to, um, the quote found down in 2012, yeah. um, analysing a uh, state of affairs in Othello yeah. as Iago intends that Cassio believes that Iago intends that Desdemona intends that Othello considers Cassio's rehabilitation. Yeah, that's the final scene of Othello, yeah. I should, there should have been a spoiler alert on that, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, what strikes me is that this makes uh, another justification for the for the use of experiments which don't or try to get around that wording because we seem to be unable to express this kind of situation coherently in words but it seems experimentally we're able to act in accordance with the assumption that we that we understand that absolutely. situation perfectly yes absolutely i i mean yes i have not nothing more to add i agree okay i wanted to ask another question because you mentioned the the point about the first we have to signal signalhood we have to yeah. uh, make it understood that our intention is to communicate something um is it actually in effect a default in humans do you think to assume that speech signals for instance are intentional uh so so certainly uh, i mean the, it does seem to be the case that speech is processed in modern humans at least speech is processed differently and does seem to um trigger a process of comprehension. So speech 
speech itself is something that signals signalhood it, it, and the, the, it has certain properties that announce the fact that it is communicative. Whether that's always the case, always has been the case in, in human prehistory uh, is another question. Indeed, I, I would argue that the fact that it's now automatic is an adaptation to the fact that we use it so often in ostensive communication. But there's no reason to think that would have always been the case. Sure. Um, is it known whether we automatically ascribe that to other um, to other actions that may or may not be communicated? I mean, do we have a right. do we have a bias to assume that actions that are ambiguous are intentional in the first instance, or is that something we reason about later? Yeah. So the, these are these are great questions that I think you know. I mean, people are researching at the moment, and we don't have um, uh, complete answers to at the moment. I guess the the most productive research program along these lines is that that of um, uh, Gergo Chibra um, and Yuri Gergely uh, in Budapest, who have their thesis of natural pedagogy. So they're developmental psychologists, and what they what they've shown is that there are, there are certain classes of signals that children are automatically predisposed to interpret as for them. So these signals, you know, they signal signalhood for the children. So those classes are um, eye gaze, um, and probably eye gaze that, that that's true in, in adults as well. Uh, motherese, so it seems that motherese is, is another, something else that turns the children on to thinking that the signal is for them um, as opposed to part of the background noise. Uh, maybe motion ease, so the, the data on that is a bit more tentative. But there, there's plenty more to be done there, both in kids and in particular in adults. So there, maybe there are whole classes of behaviours that adults uh, default to assuming are communicative. I mean, speech is the obvious one, but maybe there are others too. But I don't, I don't think we know for sure yet. Um, in Chapter 6, you, you wrap up by discussing, among other things, the status of the emergence of language and whether that qualifies, as some have argued, as a major transition in evolution. Um, you're unconvinced on that point, but you, you argue that the emergence of ostensive communication is possibly a better candidate in accordance with what you said earlier. Uh, looking forward, do you see the study of ostensive communication as something that will increasingly be done in its own right? Oh, I would love for that to be true. I don't know if that is the case. I don't know if that will actually be the case. Um, because, uh, partly because it doesn't necessarily, I was about to say, that it doesn't necessarily have a natural academic home. So, you know, as you know, pragmatics is something that is often seen as being on the periphery of linguistics as a discipline. But equally, you know, being part of pragmatics, it's not necessarily, not, not necessarily seen as something that's core to, say, cognitive science or psychology. I mean, and, and language is a kind of a more salient thing when you start looking at the human species. What you see first is is language and languages, and only when you start to look at that in detail do you see um, ostension and pragmatics and all these other factors. So, whilst I would love to see you know more attention given to ostensive communication in general, um, I don't ever I, I don't know that we'll ever get to a stage where where that's I, I guess uh, you know a. a a defining topic for, for 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 one discipline or another. What would you like to see be done about it? I mean, do, do you see that some kind of uh, reorganisation or reconfiguration of disciplines is called for, or do you think that interdisciplinarity is the way to go? Well, I mean, I'm I'm I myself am not not naturally a linguist or a cognitive scientist or an anthropologist or an evolutionary biologist, but a little bit of each of those. So. I personally am quite. I guess I'm. I'm not that interested in disciplinary, you know, boundaries for their own sake. I would be quite comfortable where 
you know, in, 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 a, in a more lo- more loosely structured organisations. But I can see there are all sorts of good administrative and practical reasons why we do have these disciplinary boundaries. And I, I guess those reasons, you know, pragmatic and sensible as they are, are, are they're more powerful than the desire to see uh, see, see, see people challenge, uh, sort of ask the questions that slip between those those disciplinary boundaries. So I, I guess I, I, I don't I don't have a strong view about what I'd like to see, except that uh, except I guess, and this is increasingly true, a willingness on the part of people within any given discipline to to embrace those that sit at the periphery of this their discipline or or, or are those those that are asking the questions that fall between that one discipline and neighbouring ones. As long as it's accepted that that's those sorts of um, intellectual that that sort of intellectual inquiry is important and valued, then you know. But, but I guess that's the main thing. Yeah. Um, how do you see the the ideas, the new ideas that you're expressing and expanding in your book, uh, getting embedded and and acted upon? Who would you like to influence? Well, in the first instance, I'd like to influence, um, you know, language evolution research. Um, I mean, that, that, that would be the first goal. So uh, something I point out at the beginning of the book. So there was a, a big book published a few years ago, the Oxford uh, Handbook of Language Evolution. A very large number of researchers from the discipline, write, each writing short chapters. Um, and, and it covers, you know, the, I mean, it's genuinely representative of the entire field. And if you go to the index, and you look up syntax and, and, and related terms and you look up semantics and related terms, you'll find um, literally hundreds of entries. If you look up pragmatics and related terms, you find eight entries. So, it, you know, that, that fact alone illustrates the extent to which pragmatics is not um, at the centre of language evolution, despite the fact that I hope to have demonstrated with the book that once you take a pragmatic perspective, a lot of the big questions you'll be interested in, like, do continuity with non-human primates, uh, just to pick, to pick just one of several. Uh, those questions start to come into clear focus if you take pragmatic seriously. So that, that would be the first um, audience, so, you know, to, to get language evolution, take it uh, thinking much more about pragmatics. Uh, after that, there, there become, there's a whole set of other audiences um, to which this work is relevant and can, and can inform various debates. So in linguistics, you know what? What is the, the what are the foundations of what language is? Um, what what are languages? What are what is language? And these questions, it seems to me, to answer those sorts of questions, those fundamental questions about the about the the, the topic of inquiry of the discipline, you know, the, the, their biological basis, their and their evolutionary basis has got to it's got to play a role in that conversation. And then you can look to evolutionary anthropology, which is concerned with the the origins of humans in general. Clearly, communication language is a, you know, a very important part of who we are. So I, I, I would like the, the, the book to be um, picked up by that sort of audience. And then there are people in cognitive science where I'm pointing, you know, I'm pointing to things about how communication works to do with the sorts of recursively embedded mental states we were just talking about, which are relevant to various debates in, in, yeah, in cognitive science and social cognition uh, in particular. So there's... There's the, there's these you know various audiences within each discipline, um, which I would hope take up the book. Uh, but the first audience is the one I guess that falls in between each of those disciplines, uh, namely language evolution people. Sure. Um, to to wrap up, I mean, there's a there's a fascinating array of empirical work 
touched on in the book, ranging from this work with, with humans and apes, the work with computational modeling, the work with bacteria that you talked about. And you also raise an enormous number of, of uh, research questions that could be addressed by experimental work and haven't been yet. What, out of all this realm of possibilities, uh, constitute your own research priorities going forward? Right. So I'm, I've become increasingly interested in an idea we mentioned uh, very briefly earlier, uh, cultural attraction. So cultural attraction is, is a thesis not only about languages, but about actually about the evolution of cultures themselves and why culture, cultural systems tend to gravitate towards certain forms and not towards other forms. So languages is one example. So languages tend to all have certain qualities, which um, may or may not be universal, may be universal or maybe strong statistical tendencies, but you do see commonalities across the world's languages. Similarly, you see commonalities uh, across uh, the culture of the world in, uh, in kinship systems, and you see commonalities in supernatural beliefs and in moral norms and in all sorts of other domains. And I've become very interested in, um, in uh, the thesis of cultural attraction, which is an idea that uh, due originally to, to Dan Sperber, who's also the architect of relevance theory, and that, it's not a co- that, that fact isn't a coincidence. Sometimes cultural attraction goes by the name of the epidemiology of representations. So you've got a, the idea being to track the spread of mental representations through a population to, and to explain why certain mental representations are common and other ones are uncommon. And the reason I've become so attracted to it is essentially the same reason I was attracted to Darwinian natural selection uh, as an idea in, in, in that period between my undergraduate and postgraduate studies. So Darwinian natural selection is so interesting because, um, because it's a powerful form of explanation. It's an explanation because it allows you to point to something external to the organism in order to explain the form that the organism takes. So once you've got the theory of natural selection, you can point to the external environment as a way of explaining why the organism takes the particular form it does, because Darwin gave us an explanation of how one can lead to the other. What's interesting about the thesis of cultural attraction is it does something very similar for cultural systems. So it allows you to point to factors external to uh, the cultural system itself to explain why the system takes the, the, the form that it does. So I'll give you a couple of examples from from languages, although the, the, the point applies more generally. Uh, yeah, so, so well, let, let's go with compositionality, which we mentioned earlier, or systematicity, as some people would call it. What the what experimental work done in Edinburgh is, has been showing in the last few years is that you get compositionality when you uh, when language users have to both learn the language and they have to use it. So if you just have to learn a language, then it becomes attracted to a form that becomes very learnable, but is actually not very good for communication. But if you add into that mixed communication, then what you get is languages which are both learnable and useful for communication, and so they end up. Uh, you end up getting uh, morphemes for individual components because that's the most um, efficient way of uh, for the language to be organized such that it's both learnable and useful for communication. So you've got the language gravitating towards a certain form, namely compositionality, and away from other forms, i.e. those without compositionality. Um, that's interesting in the context of languages, but actually you see the same sort of process uh, in work on um, the evolution of uh, supernatural beliefs and work on... Um, the evolution of, I mean, writing systems, um, moral norms, and so on and so forth. So, uh, so I'm 
increasingly interested in in the, the basic theory that's going on there and applying it across the whole range of domains that are relevant to anthropology um, languages being you know maybe a prime example for me but but not the only one I mean, this sounds like an enormous program and encompassing really the whole of a lot of fields on the way. Um, is it fair to ask where you see the ultimate seat of those those explanations? I mean, would you subscribe to a sort of neurobiology account? As a, is, that, is that a useful level of explanation on the way down, or is it simply to reduce the whole the whole problem of, what, of what's observable to the, the question of the environment in the broadest sense? So I guess I'm interested in the program of... of uh, of trying to establish a paradigm that does a similar job for anthropology, broadly conceived, um, to what Darwin's theory of natural selection does for biology. So um, providing the framework which you can then apply to the particular cases in point. So I guess it's it's not so much about neurobiology, it's more about identifying. So the terminology would be factors of attraction. So in the case of the, the example I just gave you, two factors of attraction are the, the, the demands of the human, um, you know, human learning abilities and memory, and then another factor of attraction is is, a, is an ecological one to do with uh, communication. The fact that the languages are used in communication. If you look at um, supernatural beliefs, you start to invoke different factors of attraction to do with the fact that you know these supernatural be- be- beings have to be at least somewhat um, like humans, otherwise we wouldn't be able to conceive of what they are. That if you look across the world. Uh, across the world's um, religions, then supernatural beliefs tend to be what the, the phrase is minimally counterintuitive. So they're a lot like humans, but they're they're different in one fundamental respect. For in, for instance, omniscience or or, uh, or or whatever it might be. So what's going on there is one factor of attraction is it needs to be like humans so we can understand it. Another another is it needs to be totally unlike humans otherwise it wouldn't be supernatural. Um, so then you, the trade-off of those two things gives you uh, the sorts of supernatural beliefs you see in the natural world. And again, you can tell that you can look at certain factors of languages and see a similar story. And what's interesting, I mean, language evolution is, is really interesting for this broad project because it's probably the best place to um, to really push that program in an empirical way. So uh, compositionality is one example, but I point to to a handful of others um, in, in, in chapter five in the book. Um, some of them, you know, there are genetic factors. There are um, factors to do with the physiology of the human vision, visual system. There are factors to do with um, the pragmatic demands um, of communication. Uh, and by invoking each of these, you can start to explain why particular features of languages are common in the world's languages and why other features aren't. And so, and lang- so languages are kind of a, a really good place to, to, to pursue this general program of, uh, of developing the idea of cultural attraction as a general approach the evolution of culture in humans. Well, I very much look forward to seeing how the uh, how the program pans out, and I have a feeling we're going to have a lot more to talk about in the future. Yeah, well, give, give, uh, give me five or ten years, and we'll come back. <laughs> I will hold you to that. But in the meantime, I'll say, Thomas Scott Phillips, thank you very much for your time. Not at all, thank you. I've been talking to Tom Scott Phillips about speaking our minds. This is Chris Cummins from New Books in Language saying thank you for listening.